1: Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Danny Goldberg, the author of In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Hi, Danny. Hi. So I'm wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about what brought you to write this book and what they, it's its very personal for you, right? There's memoirs in here, but what what interested you in writing this and brought you to thinking about 1967?
0: Well, I've always, had, for for some time, I've been um, irritated that most of the sort of official or best-known histories of the 60s are so much focused on the protest aspects that they, I thought, overlooked some of the other aspects that, that I was inspired by when I was a teenager. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1967, so the book, which is... Kind of a subjective history of that year is 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 ninety five percent history and only five percent memoir. My memories are not that interesting to anyone except me. Or, but I felt <clears throat> that by talking a little bit about myself and some of the people I went to high school with, that might just let the reader know whose whose eyes the narration was kind of coming from. Um, and uh, I so so I realized around the end of six 16- of 2016 that it was going to be the 50th anniversary of 67 and um, I'm sorry around Christmas time 2015 you you know I realized that, that, that it was kind of a 50 year anniversary coming up and to me 67 is the key year for the sort of more mystical optimistic aspect of the 60s it got so dark it got darker in 68 because of the assassinations of dr martin luther king and robert kennedy and other things that happened so uh, i had to hurry up and write the book and and i got it in in time for it to come out uh, you know uh, approximately 50 years after the so-called summer of love
1: right and that's one thing i really appreciated is that you gave these sort of different aspects right we not only looked at music, but you also looked at some of the roles of religion and some of the roles of the Black Power Movement and the media in the 19, in 1967, right? So you gave this sort of overarching theme. But you start with thinking about San Francisco and, and the bee in it and talking about Allen Ginsberg and Michael Bowen and the Diggers. And so can you sort of set the stage and why you started with that particular um, piece,
0: well, I wanted to start from the hippie point of view and then broaden it out. Certainly, one can't write about that time without acknowledging the overwhelming impact of the Vietnam War. And I was certainly in that group of people that were opposed to the war. Uh, but I, I wanted to I wanted to start from there and also the way the calendar laid out. Um, there was something called the Human Being on January Fourteenth of nineteen sixty-seven, and and therefore it was one of the first high-profile cultural events of of the year. Uh, I also thought it was wide enough as an event that it could just include a number of the subjects, and um, you know, if it, so, so the Human Being was the idea of uh, some people in haight Ashbury. Haight Ashbury being a neighborhood in San Francisco that, uh, starting in late 65 became a magnet for a lot of artists, musicians, people that were taking psychedelics, and, and others who, who were identifying with this inchoate counterculture. Somewhere during that period of time, a local San Francisco journalist coined the, the word hippie, uh, which, which was, um, you know, half sarcastic, half a pejorative, but it just caught on. And um, there was a there was a magazine called the San Francisco Oracle that was created in 66 that for about 18 months documented better than anything. I think the 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 Haight-Ashbury psychedelic countercultural scene, the San Francisco Oracle leaned heavily towards uh, the mystical side of the 60s, although it did include things about the war. It also had amazing graphics. This was a time where technology was allowing creative people to communicate in new ways and silkscreen printing, uh, and, and, uh, the mimeograph machine and other, other, um, things that I don't really understand allowed them to publish a very, uh, dazzling publication. The, 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 two people who, who were in charge of the Oracle were the editor Alan Cohn and the art director Michael Bowen and they and Richard Alpert uh, who was a, um, a, former Harvard professor who had helped popularize LSD along with Tim Leary. They had both gotten fired from Harvard. Anyway, Bowen, Cohen, and Alpert were talking in October of 66 after a celebration, tongue-in-cheek celebration that had been done in, in, in San Francisco on the day that LSD was made illegal in, in San, in California. Um, October 6th, 1966. And they thought that there were about 3,000 people that came to that. There were free performances by the local bands, the Grateful Dead, Big Brother, and the Holding Company. So much of the music was free in those days, um, outdoors. And um, I think it was Albert who came up with the name Human Being. It was a play on the words human being and kind of a riff on the political situations in the 60s earlier, the sit-ins, which, which the civil rights movement used to integrate lunch counters and public facilities. The teach-ins, which the anti-war movement used on universities to educate people about the arguments against the war in Vietnam. And in that context, they coined the phrase the B-In. Uh, but it had a subtitle, which was the gathering of the tribes. And that was the central idea that they had. They realized that there were quite a few disparate elements in the counterculture, there were the political radicals whose main agenda was political and economic change, particularly but not limited to the war. A lot of them were based in Berkeley. There were the musicians who were living there. There were the anarchist-leaning group called the Diggers who came out of experimental theater and who uh, had opened a free soup kitchen and believed then everything should be free. There were the mystics, there were the su- people who took psychedelics, and there were dozens of subgroups in the culture, and they thought that it would be good to try to get all of them together, and they planned this thing. Uh took place in January, a few months later. They created a stage for it in Golden Gate Park, and the one person who they could think of, who was respected by all the disparate elements in the counterculture, political, mystical, musical, psychedelic, and so on, was, was Allen Ginsberg, who was older than, than the baby boom generation. He was in his late 30s then. Uh, he was uh, beloved in intellectual bohemian circles as one of the most influential poets in the country. He had read, he had debuted his poem, Howl, about a decade earlier at a small club in San Francisco. Uh, he had uh, taken LSD with Tim Leary earlier in the 60s. Uh, he had befriended both the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and uh, he had a sense of the moment. And uh, the afternoon drew um, 30 or 40,000 people. I, I know one journalist who thinks it was 100,000, but it was certainly a lot. And it was at least five or 10 times more than any previous uh, HIP gathering had attracted in the Bay Area. And the media all around the world noted the explosion of this hippie phenomenon, as they called it. And um, I, uh, I'd heard about it. Never, i never I – I was still in school. I was living in New York. I didn't get to go. And I, I found there was quite, quite a bit of detail available from films, oral histories, and, uh, and journalists at the time, and I tried to reconstruct it as much detail as possible to be in sort of the first chapter of the book.
1: Right, and it seems that this also allowed a connection to New York, to Los Angeles, to other areas. Um, somehow everything was aligned in a way that sort of broadened it beyond just sort of the Bay Area.
0: Well, there were underlying realities that were certainly not limited to the Bay Area. One was, uh, LSD by becoming illegal, the government by, make it, by making it illegal and uh, other states soon followed California, turned it over to criminals and dope dealers, you know, you know, uh, exploded their national footprint and suddenly LSD was available everywhere. Secondly, the war was an issue everywhere and, uh, Music travels fast, and the music of some of the San Francisco bands, the first one to become nationally popular was the Jefferson Airplane traveled fast. Uh, and, um, you know, people took photos of the B-In, and uh, uh, a few months later, on Easter Sunday, uh, I think it was March 26th of that year, but whatever Easter Sunday was in 67, there were B-In's in... New York and Los Angeles, which both had strong creative communities that really felt uh, they wanted to identify with this. They did it slightly differently. Each each community was slightly different. Um, in L.A., they didn't have speakers or poems. They just only had music. And in New York, they didn't have any stage at all. The people who organized in New York b were heavily influenced by the diggers. They really uh, felt that uh, any type of separation between so-called performers and so-called audience, so-called celebrities and community was, was a contradiction of the spirit that they were embracing. And so they, 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 they did it anonymously. Uh, they um, would never, uh, when they talked about it on the radio, I, Jim Ferrat, who's still alive, as a friend of mine, talked to me for the book and he never mentioned his name. When he was talking about it, uh, the psychedelic artist Peter Max uh, gave them a, 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 an image that they used on a flyer but uh in the first printing of it, he put his name on it like artists do. They sign their work, and Jim uh, insisted that they destroy those 50,000 copies and reprint it without a name because the whole ethos was the opposite of a star trip for that brief moment, and Max agreed to that. So both in L.A. and, and, and New York, the same thing that had happened in San Francisco occurred, which was a gigantic crowd of long-haired, colorfully dressed uh, people emerged, tens of thousands of them, again, five or ten times more than any similar gatherings in any of these places. And then the whole culture just spread like wildfire. It became an international Western counterculture within weeks.
1: Mm -hmm. And so you set this up, and I have to say, Allen Ginsberg is probably one, if not the favorite one of my favorite poets of all time so I love that he's throughout this book but you set us up with this sort of 1967 the beginning of 1967 and then you move into 50s culture to sort of give a background into what led into that so can you talk a little bit about um the what you talk about in there the civil rights movement you talk about Kennedy and and Huxley and Leary and LSD and all these sort of things that brought us to 1967.
0: Uh, Yes. Uh, Tim, Tim Leary um, often said, and once said to me that if you want to understand the sixties, you need to understand the Mm fifties. And I, I assume he was talking about the more repressive context that led to a yearning for something different. And uh, I certainly didn 't have the space to write a history of the 50s but I wanted to sketch out a few of the currents of cultural energy that led to what then happened in the 60s uh, one certainly was the civil rights movement uh, the the uh, the Montgomery bus boycott in the mid 50s education decision that forced racial integration of schools was a huge thunderclap of change after a hundred years of Jim Crow segregation and, and, and activated um, what was then called first the Negro community, then the black community, and then the African American community to, 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 to insist on levels of equality and inclusion that they hadn't had before and which reverberated uh, in every corner of America. By the early 60s, some were frustrated with Dr. King's commitment to nonviolence. And other than Allen Ginsberg, I would say Dr. King is the other central hero of my book and my observation of 60s America. But there were many, many other black leaders as well, most famously Malcolm X, who was murdered in 65, but whose influence continues to be very profound. And in 67, the people that were the most influenced by Malcolm X's approach to race relations were Stokely Carmichael, who took over leadership of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC, and and later the Black Panthers who emerged by the end of 67. The second cultural strand that led to the 60s to me was the anti-war movement, and that emerged in a very direct sense from a peace movement that preceded the Vietnam War why a peace movement before there was a war because there was a cold war Mm -hmm. uh and and obviously many historians have described that after world war ii and the death of franklin roosevelt uh how that developed but but by the time i was growing up um you know there were air raid drills uh, where people in schools were supposed to uh hide under their desk or go to a designated basement area that theoretically would make them safe in the event of a nuclear attack, and uh, people were actually selling fallout shelters to middle class and wealthy people on the theory that those would work. What a scam. You could never know if it would work or not (laughs) unless there was a nuclear war. But I remember being a kid, uh, you know, and some friends of my parents had a fallout shelter, and I was really jealous at first, and then I realized they were just idiots for having (laughs) wasted the money. So there became some activists, and there were nuclear tests going on. So one of the people I interviewed for the book is a woman named Cora Weiss, who's still alive, who was one of the founders of Women's Strike for Peace, which was created in the very early 1960s um, to, to a protest atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs, because there was some research that developed that the uh, radioactive fallout Uh, could, uh, could get into the grass that uh, cows would eat, and therefore the milk that then would be consumed by infants could have contamination from radioactivity. And that in general, um, there was a huge health and environmental hazard in terms of long term from these uh, tests. And they organized women around the country, um, uh, very, uh, as Cora said, they would wear white gloves, there was no cursing allowed. A very uh, they wanted to make it comfortable for families and uh, it was a successful movement. President Kennedy signed uh, a nuclear testing treaty with Soviet Union in the early 60s and the uh, several dozen members of Women's Strike for Peace congregated outside the White House to celebrate the signing of the treaty and the president sent his wife Jackie Kennedy out to give them coffee and donuts to thank them for the role they had played. So th- 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 I um, when I was in seventh grade, uh, I met a fellow student named Joel Goodman, whose uncle, Paul Goodman, was was a, a, a radical philosopher who's very influential in counterculture ideas in the 50s and 60s. So he was cooler than me, Joel. And, and he he uh, had he had heard about the idea of protesting. Air raid drills in schools, and me and him and a few other people did indeed protest air raid dr- drills at the school we went to called Fieldston, and uh, we were suspended for a day, but then by the next year the school stopped having the air raid drills, so uh, that was both good and bad. It was good to know you could make a difference, and it was bad to think it was that easy most of the time. So some journalists went over to Vietnam early, uh, and and, uh, discovered um, arguments against the war, and there started to be what were called teach-ins as early as 1965. I, still in high school, went on my first anti-war march in 1965. Um, And then the third strand that I wanted to document to set the stage for 1967 was the introduction of psychedelics into the culture. And um, LSD had been discovered in the 40s in Switzerland. But psychedelics really became popularized in, in at least some corners of the culture in the 50s. First, um, Aldous Huxley took uh, uh, the British author, best known for Brave New World, uh, moved to Los Angeles, uh, started studying Vedanta, a form of Hinduism, and somehow was introduced to mescaline. Uh, and mescaline was the uh, derivative of peyote, which which uh, Native Americans had long used as a sacrament. And it was a psychedelic experience that wasn't that different from LSD. And he wrote the book, The Doors of Perception. Uh, the rock band, The Doors, took their name from The Doors of Perception. And it was uh, quite a... It, it's, his description in the 1950s of his mescaline experiences were quite similar to what many people felt a decade later in the 60s when they took LSD. Uh, The CIA um, was experimenting with psychedelics. They thought it might be a mind-control drug uh, that would be useful in the event of war. This proved not to be the case, but during their experiments, uh, a number of influential people took it under government approval. One was the novelist Ken Kesey, who wrote, uh, most famously, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and who later would be one of the biggest evangelists for LSD. His activities are chronicled in Tom Wolfe's famous book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And uh, another was Henry Luce and his wife, Claire Booth Luce. Luce was the owner of Time Magazine and Life Magazine, one of the most powerful media figures in America. A powerful business person and not a liberal. He was a fierce cold warrior. Uh, He never uh, changed his mind about the virtues in his mind of the Vietnam War and was a close friend of Richard Nixon. But he and Clinton and it was a strange quirk that in the middle of this very kind of establishment mainstream publishing empire there was a continued series of articles about psychedelics, one of which was about uh, mushrooms in Mexico, so-called magic mushrooms that contain the psychedelic psilocybin. That article that appeared sometime in the late 50s was read by a Harvard psychology professor named Timothy Leary, who went down to Mexico, took the mushrooms, and whose life was forever changed, and he became the best-known proponent of LSD in America. And after after he took the mushrooms... He then was told by a friend to read Huxley's Doors of Perception, realized that Huxley was describing a very similar experience to what he had, and he befriended Huxley, and they were very close friends until Huxley's death. And Huxley's death happened to have been November 22nd, 1963, which was the same day that John Kennedy was assassinated. Huxley had asked Leary to bring some LSD to him, which he gave to his wife, Laura Huxley, and Huxley was injected with LSD while he was dying, died while tripping. And uh, for those of us that believe there's some inchoate mystical spirit that was the 60s, and it was just sort of inhabited by all these people that later became famous, the synchronicity of those two things is hard to ignore. Mm
1: -hmm. Very much so. And so you sort of set this up and, and introduce these characters and sort of the these these issues that you feel are really important. And then you move into the role of the media and, and both the mass media and the underground press, which are both really important elements. So can you talk a little bit about the role of both mass media and the underground press in sort of setting up
0: 1967? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> and what's more, I will. Um, well, the, the thing about the six, a lot of the ideas that are known as sixties ideas, the bohemian ideas, the, the, the embrace of agape, the Greek word for universal love, the questioning of materialism, experimentation in, uh, uh living styles, questioning of conventional morality, questioning of the government. These were not new. There had been countercults bohemian groups for, Decades and decades, centuries and centuries, really, in in the West. In America, certainly Emerson and the Transcendentalists were among them, and the beats of the 50s. What was unique about the 60s was that those ideas, which had previously been uh, only talked about or embodied in neighborhoods like Greenwich Village or a few university towns, collided with a mass media. And so ideas that were previously talked about by thousands became Embraced by tens of millions, and the media was what what did that? And there were various kinds of media. Um, the mass media was driven then, as they are now, by advertising, and advertisers wanted young people. Uh, that's when brand preferences are formed, so the theorists say. And uh, the so-called baby boom generation—people that had been born after World War II—were the biggest generation in history. So. The mass media was highly sensitive to anything that could communicate to this new generation. Uh, young people are always a mystery to older people, and it was that way today, and it was that way then. At the same time, a few technological developments facilitated an underground media that was owned and created and ad- directly by counterculture people. And the two principal types of media were... <laughs> underground newspapers, and this was facilitated by the invention of the mimeograph machine. The big machine that people like was made by a company called Gestetner. just cost a couple of thousand dollars, and it's incredible how many times, as I was researching the period, the mimeograph machines were central. Certainly in Haight-Ashbury, the diggers uh, communicated with people in that community by these uh, handouts that they mimeographed. The Black Panthers, when they started their newspaper, it was on that same mimeograph machine. Uh, and in New York, uh, the poet Ed Sanders, who was a little, again, in his 30s, a little older than the baby boomers, but became an important figure, uh, a protege of Allen Ginsberg, and a pacifist, uh, started uh, a magazine called Fuck You, a magazine of the arts, which he published on a mimeograph machine out of a bookstore he started on the Lower East Side. And Very quickly, um, as the audience kind of developed for it, there were underground newspapers in almost every major city in America. As far as I could tell, the first of these was the Los Angeles Free Press. It was run by a guy that was a lefty, and he realized that a pure socialist newspaper was just not going to appeal to this new generation. So he created something that included things about sexuality, drugs, and rock and roll, as well as protests. And New York, uh, had had an alternative weekly for a long, since the fifties called the village voice started by Norman Mailer and some other people. But, uh, you know, by the sixties, although they did cover the counterculture and as a kid growing up in New York, I found the village voice indispensable Mm -hmm. in terms of informing me about both political and cultural ideas that were different from what I was getting in the New York times. But, um, they were still considered a little stodgy by some of the acid heads, and they were a little bit uh, contemptuous of some of the counterculture. They they were more in the liberal zone, and uh, so something called the East Village Other sprang up, and then, you know, by 68, there were a 100 of these, and almost, you know, Ann Arbor, Philadelphia, Atlanta. It was hardly an American city that didn't have an underground newspaper, and there was a looseness. Syndicate that came up where they shared articles and information and millions of people were learning about the Black Panthers or Abby Hoffman or Tim Leary in a way that they couldn't have gotten from their local papers or on TV and At the same time the same year American radio changed There had long been the technological Fact of FM radio. I don't know much about technology, so I can't explain exactly the difference between (laughs) between FM and AM But FM stations uh, originally were just either rebroadcasting what was on AM stations if they were owned by the same people, and then there were a few of them that would play classical music or have news shows, uh, uh, you know, often farming reports or things like that. And then the FCC um, made a rule that they couldn't the station if you owned an AM and an FM you couldn't run exactly the same programming all the time that two thirds of the time it had to be original. And uh, there was a guy named Tom Donahue in San Francisco, who was an AM disc jockey playing the top 40 with the high pitched intense, uh, uh, you know, speed raps that the top 40 DJs had, but who was heavily influenced by what was going on in San Francisco. He'd been to the Fillmore and seen to Jefferson airplane and the dead and Janis Joplin and, other bands, and Country Joe and the Fish and so on, and he realized that the Top 40 stations were not playing the music that all of his friends were playing at parties. People were listening to entire albums. They weren't just listening to individual songs. So the Top 40 station might play the Doors song, Light My Fire, but they never played the other songs on the album, like the amazing 10-minute song at the end of it called The End. So he convinced the bankrupt station in San Francisco called KMPX to give him airtime on a profit split started playing albums by Hendrix and the Beatle and the Dylan and as well as blues records and Ravi Shankar records or whatever the stoned out DJs thought was cool. And it overnight became an incredibly powerful station. The Monterey pop festival, which happened in June of 67 was marketed solely based on DJs on KMPX talking about it. And uh, by the next year, there was an underground FM radio station. That's what it was. They were called originally the format in uh, uh, all over North America. So between underground radio and underground press, there were people that weren't that hadn't gone to journalism school and didn't care much about um, conventional advertising pressures who who could multiply these counterculture ideas to millions. And they also influenced the journalists at the mainstream media who were seeing the stories and what they were talking about and who were under pressure from their bosses to get young people. So these two things just vastly multiplied the exposure. And finally, the music itself mm-hmm. uh, was reaching a much bigger audience because the album became the principal art form instead of just a single. Concerts were presented as artistic experiences where a band would play for an hour, an hour and a half, instead of just coming up and doing their hits. And um, the music was the shared language of young people in the Western world. Uh, So these three things combined suddenly gave a platform, like I said, of tens of millions of people. And I write a lot about somebody that was not a baby boomer, Marshall McLuhan, who was in his well into his 60s by 1967, who was a Canadian professor who studied the media? As far as I know, he's the person who popularized the word "the media." It's so ubiquitous now. But when I was growing up, no one ever talked about television. You talked about newspapers. He wrote a book called Understanding Media that became a huge bestseller and made him kind of the number one public intellectual in the world. And and he loved the counterculture, and they loved him. Uh, Tim Leary coined the phrase. Turn on, tune in, drop out uh, after a lunch with McLuhan where McLuhan explained to him he needed slogans. And uh, the people who formed the Yippies, Sherry Rubin and Ari- Abby Hoffman, were were clo- new and closely followed McLuhan's guidance on how to use the media to get revolutionary ideas out into the public. Um, uh, as did uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono who were also close, close friends of, of McLuhan. So uh, I wanted I, I thought it was important to describe in some detail the media of the time, because that's how most of us became part of this counterculture is through exposure. That's how I learned everything I knew about it was from the media.
1: Right. And and you, and you started to talk about, you mentioned a bit about the music, right? So we have the press and we have this underground radio and albums. And so you have this chapter where you do talk about the music, which is really important to some of these themes and, 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 um, the whole idea of the sort of sixties movement. And so you, but you move beyond just this idea of the, you talk about the San Francisco sound, but in psychedelic rock, but you also bring in some of the counterculture and Frank Zappa and folk as well. So could you talk a bit about the, a little bit more about the role of the music and the role of the music played in, in some of these important sort of sounds that came out in 1967?
0: Well, certainly the San Francisco culture that was such a, thought leader for it, uh, music was integral to it. The Grateful Dead, Big Brother, and the Holden Company, the Jefferson Airplane, the most famous three of them, but also groups like Country Joe and the Fish and Quicksilver Messenger Service and others. They they, they, they were co-equal with anybody in, in, that, in that community. And music travels. So um, because the album was the main art form for the first time, it gave musical artists a much bigger stage on which to express kind of ideas thoughts and music uh, the recording technology had developed uh, stereo w- 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 was now old enough that producers were able to really master it and create uh, works that specifically for the stereo and and it was ch- it, it, the price of buying stereo equipment dropped enough that it was a, a middle- class item you know there were these mm-hmm. portable Stereo record players that KLH made that were ubiquitous in college dorms. They cost, I think, a few hundred bucks, and they, they sounded amazing compared to what had been available before that for the same amount of money. Same with headphones. Suddenly headphones, which previously had only been used in recording studios, were available. And, um, you know, the music somehow connected for a lot of people with the psychedelic experience. There was an impressionistic emotional quality to the music Listening to music was just central to a lot of people's psychedelic experiences. Aldous Huxley, in his first writings about Mescaline, wrote about listening to music. And, uh, it became, um, and because it's much quicker to write a song, record it, and release it than it is to write a novel or produce a movie, uh, music was more up to date in terms of mirroring and influencing the rapidly changing, uh, culture. And you know the culmination of this for a lot of people would come in '69 with the Woodstock Festival, but but it had already started long, you know, by by the mid '60s. Uh, and um, and and I I uh, started my career as a music critic, and I didn't want to try to uh, compete with the brilliant critics that have chronicled the music of them. So I just tried to cover, you know, about a dozen examples of music where it connected with. With with the culture, so you know, I wrote about Country Joe and the Fish, the Jefferson Airplane. Obviously, one can't write about this period without focusing on the Beatles, even though there's been hundreds of books about the Beatles. And um, and the thing, if I could segue to another chapter, one of the many, many, many things the Beatles did that were unprecedented, uh, besides being having been the biggest musical artist in the world since 1964 in America, they debuted on the Ed Sullivan's show six weeks after President Kennedy's assassination. But by, in the summer of 67, uh, George Harrison and John Lennon in particular became very interested in Eastern philosophy, and uh, all of the Beatles met someone named the Maharishi, who was the creator of transcendental meditation, which to this day is a very important vehicle for a lot of people to learn meditation and study what they call mindfulness and countless. Influential and famous people are interested in that. That was introduced to the West by the Beatles, period. The word meditation, again, another word that no one had ever heard unless you went to theology school or lived in a monastery, suddenly was on the front pages of tabloids. And um, shortly after that, uh, George Harrison and uh, Lennon in particular became interested in another branch of Hinduism with the so-called Hare Krishna movement. And uh, Eastern... um, so, so, so the Beatles had that kind of cultural power, and on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, they didn't just have a picture of the Beatles, which is what they'd done on all their other albums. Where they had one graphic on Revolver, it was kind of an abstract graphic with drawings of them. It, they placed themselves in the context of this wider culture. They overtly said that to the audience. So there's dozens of people on the cover, which include beat the Beatles. And they have kind of uh, wax statues of uh, everybody from, um, uh, Alistair Crowley to, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda to Marilyn Monroe to, uh, various, uh, novelists, painters, uh, actors, philosophers, and mystics. And, um, they, 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 they really uh, seemed to be on, on the cutting edge of whatever it was that was happening. And they were able to absorb it very quickly because they were fascinated by it. Both George Harrison and Paul McCartney went to Haight-Ashbury early on. And uh, uh, you know, they, the music somehow became a, a, the biggest um, a megaphone in this feedback loop of millions of people trying to reinvent society.
1: Right and so you brought up just
0: and and, a... and, and I'm sorry to, to to interrupt on a parallel track black music was also exploding.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in America there were the R&B radio stations, the black radio stations played almost all black music and the rock stations played some black music but mostly white music. White audiences would hear the blues of Buddy Waters and and some and 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 and, and some black music but black audiences were in a cultural ghetto, but it was an incredibly creative ghetto that produced some of the greatest American music ever, including uh, the most famous of Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding's work. And there was also kind of a reinvention of jazz that was overtly embracing psychedelia through the work of people like Ornette Coleman and Sun Ra, and most famously John Coltrane, who died in 1967, had himself developed a keen interest in both Buddhism and Hinduism and, 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 and fit into this constellation of cultural influences. And the music somehow was the text, as I said, other media would catch up in the next few years, but because it was the quickest to, to create and disseminate, it was the dominant art form during that period of time in America.
1: Right. And because you mentioned religion, let's sort of, talk about that a bit. You do have a chapter on sort of religion and spirituality and you talk about the Beatles, but is there anything else about religion and like the, how religion sort of influenced 1967 for you and the sixties?
0: Well, a lot of the hippies, certainly the editors of the Oracle who created the B and, and others saw before it got sour, before it became corrupted and damaged and dissipated during this brief period of sweetness, they saw it as a spiritual movement. And it's hard for people sometimes, in retrospect, to think of this. They think of people just being stoned and saying dumb things and laughing a lot. But the origins, there was a period of time where the psychedelic world in particular had a a, a sincere quest for answers about the meaning of life by people that just had grown up without feeling they had answers to those questions. Some of them had grown up in mainstream religious families and found their local churches or synagogues not to have a spiritual vitality that inspired them. Some of them were actually turned off by uh, pressure to conform to uh, sexual behavior that they thought was too limiting. but the dominant religion in America, in my opinion, then as now, was materialism. Uh, that's what kind of the show Mad Men documents.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, you know, uh, and obviously the most famous materialist, Ayn Rand, uh, who who explicitly rejected religion and who's a great hero of today's Republican establishment. Um, materialism. Was was a huge thing. And when people think of the 50s and early 60s, they think of consumerism, trying to get the car with the biggest tail fins and this kind of a thing. But it goes beyond that. Uh, Richard Alpert uh, talked about becoming a professor at Harvard, achieving everything externally that the world told him made him a good boy. He made money. He had his own plane. Uh, uh, He was considered attractive. Um, He had this great job. He was on a tenure track. And he felt this uh, emptiness that couldn't be filled by the quest for material things. So after the psychedelics spread, um, some people started wondering, well, what are the more ancient traditions that encompass some of these uh, truths? Uh, Leary and Alpert specifically had been turned on to the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Aldous Huxley, uh, published a translation of it, and... um, uh, you know, there was a flock of spiritual teachers, some homegrown, some from India and other parts of the East, who uh, who came to these neighborhoods like the Lower East Side and haight knowing that there were these seekers there and there were dozens of different. It was like a bazaar uh, to walk around in in hip areas was it was like a bazaar of uh, spiritual options Um some of them to me were more attractive than others. And some mm. scared me a lot. I remember there were Scientology was very aggressive in all these mm. neighborhoods and that scared me. I didn't want to have anything to do with holding tin cans and getting electric shock. Um, even if a very attractive women would invite me to do so. Uh, but um, so Swami Sachidananda came to New York city for the internal yoga Institute and and that was one of the first places where people could go and do yoga and learn about yoga and vegetarian food he ended up giving the benediction at the woodstock festival a lot of people started reading the works of uh, mer baba who was then a close you know a, a, old older man his, but had written several books he he died i think in 68 um, and uh and uh, buddhism became popular with other people who didn't like the form um Uh, There had been some American Buddhist teachers, most notably Alan Watts, originally from England, who had moved to San Francisco and had a local radio show in San Francisco and written books about it. But but it grew dramatically. Um, There was an ancient Chinese book called the I Ching, which had influenced Confucius and Lao Tzu that suddenly went from selling a thousand copies a year to a 100,000 copies a year. You would throw coins and ostensibly tune in with the universe and get some direction in your life through these Um, poetic uh, uh, quatrains and I must say I loved the I Ching Mm -hmm. you didn't have to join an organization you didn't have to uh, memorize or learn another language but you could kind of try to tune into something bigger than the linear world so this was a big part of the change of the 60s to me was uh, a a drive towards spirituality it was very much a threat to establish religion and it, it was part of what created a reaction against the counterculture in the hippie movement. But don't forget in nineteen sixty six Time magazine had, had a cover story saying, Is God dead? Just those three words on the cover. And this is when Time was by far the most influential magazine in the world. Uh so this all came in the context of some real doubts in the established world and a real yearning of people who didn't want to solely define themselves, you know, by money.
1: Right. And- so to move to one of your other chapters, it sort of ties in with religion in a way you, you talk, you have a chapter on the black power movement, but you talk about for personally, for me, another one of my favorite people of all history um, and the nation of Islam convert Muhammad Ali. And you talk about sort of Muhammad Ali's role in 1967 and what he did with the anti-war protests. So can you talk a little bit about that chapter or, Ali in particular and sort of what he did and what impact he made?
0: Yeah, it took all of my self-control and desire to meet a deadline, not to just write much, much more about Muhammad Ali, because I share your enthusiasm for him. And um, he was such a, other than the Beatles, he was the other larger than life figure of, of that time in the 60s that was just known almost all over the world and first he became known because he was this incredibly good-looking and gifted fighter uh named cassius clay and i just rooted for him because he was just so cool and he used to make up poems predicting which round he would knock out his opponents in and most of the time he met his prediction then against seven to one odds he beat Sonny Liston and became the youngest heavyweight champion ever. And um, two weeks after that, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. He had met Malcolm X. He had converted to the Nation of Islam, unbeknownst to his fans up until that moment, and became this incredibly controversial figure overnight because Islam was considered know uh, <laughs> You know, uh, unlike today, yeah, exactly.
1: um, <laughs> unlike so today, much more, uh, <laughs> you
0: know, there were, there were when, when we're so tolerant of Islam as a country, you know, it was just considered this huge threat to Christianity and to uh, American uh, normalcy. I always used to tell myself that if John Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, he would have invited all of you to the White House. But Johnson didn't. And um, and then um, he was of draft age and he was drafted. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he refused to, uh, participate in the draft. This all took place in 1967. Uh, and he was, um, convicted of draft evasion and, uh, stripped of his title and didn't fight for three years during his prime and, uh, didn't have another form of income. And it was an incredibly principled and courageous act. Uh, he was not, uh, uh, a politician or a scholar, or a writer, But in his own charismatic way, he articulated some of the arguments about Vietnam better than anyone else. And he was at that time, I don't think there's any denying he was then the most famous person in America who was against the war. Uh, Dr. King privately had uh, congratulated him when he uh, became champion a few years earlier, the only civil rights leader to do so. Because, again, the mainstream civil rights leaders were not fans of the Nation of Islam And um, they had privately stayed in touch, and King uh, wrote extensively and spoke extensively about how uh, inspired he was by Dr. King. So did Stokely Carmichael, the black power guy. And um, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that King's speech uh, opposing the war in Vietnam in April of 67 and his decision to join uh, an anti-war march right after that uh, occurred just a few weeks after Ali had opposed the war in Vietnam. Uh, and I look at the two of them, even though they were so different, obviously different religions, Christianity and Islam, uh, one of, uh, you know, incredibly well-educated and eloquent preacher and the other whose genius was physical. Um, but they, they quickly became two of the most important moral leaders in terms of analyzing and responding to the war in Vietnam and uh, they both were deeply affected by their spirituality, even though a lot of people against the war were socialists and uh, some were pacifists, some were Quakers, but many, you really rejected organized religion. But there's just no question that a lot of the moral leadership happened to come from these two very religious people.
1: Right. And then so you move into also this idea of the, you say that, you know, most people think about the anti war movement and the revolution and there's other, aspects and other issues but you also do talk about you know having a, sort of a revolution or the resistance um and so can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing and what you talked about as we got to the end of 1967 and um how things moved forward
0: well the anti-war movement had 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 really uh, emerged in 65 as the escalation of the war emerged and 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 Uh, The uh, Congress uh, passed some authorities for the president to dramatically increase the number of troops there. Um, And um, by 67, there were a lot of divisions within the anti-war movement. First of all, the American left famously was prone to infighting. Uh, che Guevara, who by coincidence was killed in 1967, had quipped that the uh, if you ask the American left to form a firing squad, they get into a circle. And um, but in addition to sort of a neurotic tribalism that made a lot of people on the left feel that they had the one solution to the war, there were some substantive divisions. There were people that believed in nonviolence. Those happened to be the people that most inspire me, and those included. Um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock, who was a famous uh, pediatrician who had written a baby book that was the most popular American book other than the Bible, and then became, he was older, he was bald, bald guy with a rim of white hair, uh, you know, well into his sixties, but he was a fixture at anti-war, uh, uh, protests, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of a grown-up spokesman against the war. It included people that, uh, came out of the student movement some of whom really believed that were inspired by third world revolutions and who actually toyed with the idea of an actual revolution in the united states and who strongly pressured a lot of the anti-war movement into more confrontational tactics by coincidence the big buzzword in the movement in 67 at sds which was a big anti-war group for students for democratic society and others was resistance a word that's also very popular in 2017 among people who disagree with the Trump administration. And there were a number of events where people were turning over cars and confronting policemen uh, and, and, and so on. And, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, confusion because the launch of the movement was very exciting. It went from just a few academics to hundreds of thousands of people coming to peace marches and a sense of momentum that made people think we're going to end the war the same way the civil rights movement ended legal des- segregation, but they didn't end the war because it turned out it was the forces that were in favor of the war were quite a bit more powerful than those who were in favor of legal segregation. They controlled the U.S. military, they 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 were involved with some of the most profitable corporations in the world, and they controlled most of the government. and um, And when the war didn't end, and more and more young Americans came back in in coffins and body bags, and a hundred times as many Asians were killed. Uh, Some people in the anti-war movement grew desperate, frustrated, impatient, and angry, and you had this cacophony of voices within the anti-war movement. Uh, And um, ultimately, I think that approach hit a dead end, and in the early 70s, Uh, new approaches to ending the war came about using veterans against the war and other types of way of connecting with to convince sort of a saliently a politically salient majority of americans to be against it so it finally ended in in the mid-70s but in the late 60s uh it was kind of a mess there was this raw emotion that many people had against the war but they didn't really have a plan john lennon wrote the song revolution and it's uh you know, if you look at the lyrics, he says, you say you want a revolution, we'd all love to see the plan. And I called, uh, Michael Kazin, who was president of SDS at Harvard at that period. And I told him this cause he had kind of looked down on the hippies and felt they weren't serious enough about changing things. And I said, well, you know, John Lennon said, we'd all love to see the plan. And he laughed and he says, I got to admit, we didn't have one. <laughs>
1: And you move into this sort of then sort of what happens and the, you know, the death of the hippie movement and and sort of the co-option of the hippie movement, as well as a little bit about um, the Abby Hoffman and his yippie movement. He's another one who I love. Um, So can you talk a little bit about sort of how you saw like 1967 and this movement sort of coming to a close and, and sort of that the change you saw?
0: Well, the, the, the external symbols, long hair, uh, Edwardian clothes, or tie dye, um, uh, kind of a language that was a combination of ghetto slang and, uh, stoned, uh, vocabulary, um, and, um, a lot of the external symbols were very quickly drained of meaning and co-opted by advertisers, by predators, uh, Uh, by idiots, and uh, the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood in particular was destroyed by the influx of people who'd read about the B-In. The B-In is January of 67, and by October of 67, the same people who organized the B-In organized a ceremony called the Death of Hippie. And it wasn't a ceremony that attracted anywhere as many people as the B-In, but symbolically, I think it's really worth noting, because they knew by then that the word hippie was useless that, that it was that it that it, that it didn't stand for the values that they had started with it that it was that it was a marketing tool to sell uh, uh, you know black lights and head shops and and uh, and uh, all sorts of other products through for Madison Avenue um, uh, on a bigger scale uh, that it was used as sort of a, a laugh line in, in sitcoms uh, and indeed and 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 so. So the external forms were drained of meaning and the spirit kind of went to the country and people didn't have to look all the same and uh, use all the same words. I feel the spirit lived on and still lives on. But that moment where there was on the mass media screen of the Western world, the counterculture did come to an end as it had to, because after all, the issues of violence and nonviolence of greed and generosity of uh you know, uh, living in the moment and living in the future and all these cosmic ideas, these are problems, thousands of years of humanity. And, uh, the idea that, that in a few years or even a generation, we could get utopia on earth was delusional and, uh, no one should blame themselves because we didn't completely change the world. Uh, the idea is to try to make a positive impact on the world. And, um, I, I kind of came up with the analogy of an LSD trip. One of the things about LSD is that uh, during a f- for a few hours, you really can feel that you're connected with the whole universe. And some people would even say directly experiencing God or as close to God as the human mind can, can come. And But you come down. And this is what... Richard Alper realized, which is why at the end of 67, he went to India, stopped taking psychedelics and ended up meeting his guru, came back as Ram Dass and wrote the book Be Here Now. Uh, Peter Coyote described it, who was one of the diggers and today is quite a still a very successful actor, but he was a huge force in the hate He said it was like taking a helicopter to the top of a mountain. So you could see what the world looked like from the top of the mountain, but then the helicopter put you back down on the bottom and you have to spend the rest of your life climbing up one step at a time. And I think that's true for the society at large as well. The, the, hippie, the hippie phenomenon was not something that saved the world, but gave millions of people a notion and an aspiration to try to do so. But the external parts of it uh, quickly became... Uh, distorted, uh, co-opted, bastardized, and meaningless. And I understand people who grew up 10 years later who had contempt for what they thought hippies were. I just always want to say to them, if only you knew what it was really like, because it's not the way it looked. But that was part of the gig. You know, Um, the spirit uh, can't be photographed.
1: Right, and so you mentioned like right at the beginning of the interview, you talked about how we're on the 50th anniversary of 1967, and and I really appreciated your book because many of the. The writers and the sort of the politics that was going on is really important in influencing me, right? And so it brought me back to that and it gave me this very holistic. I handed the book to my husband, who's a musician, and he is very drawn to a lot of the music. And so we both found some great things in here. And so I'm wondering, like, in as you think about it, in the in this we're at this 50th anniversary, like. What do you think, what do you see that legacy being today, and why is this sort of, you know, you've talked a little bit about it, but is there anything else that you see as really important to, like, right now in 2017?
0: Well, I think that there are, there are sort of, broadly speaking, you could divide it into two legacies. There's a cultural and a political. So the cultural legacy I think is easier to identify. Uh there are yoga places everywhere. Alternative medicine is spoken about everywhere. Um the the many important figures in the modern America, Steve Jobs, creator of Apple Computers, Oprah Winfrey, uh Judd Apateau and others, uh directly acknowledge that their careers as my lesser career was directly motivated by sixties culture. And and uh, certainly what happened right in the wake of it in terms of the feminist movement and the gay rights movement were further uh, iterations of some of the changes culturally that were imagined and were inspirational. Um, the political answer is much more complicated because, of course, the opposing forces that protect capitalism and militarism are much greater. Uh, and there is a sense, I know, of when I talk to my kids about this, that 2017 does remind them of what they think the 60s were, because there's sort of a sense of existential dread. The Vietnam War was an existential threat to the lives of 20 million young men, and the nuclear arms race uh, was a threat to everybody on the planet. Uh, Of course, there's still nuclear weapons today that could kill everyone on the planet, but... We haven't had the level of stress, thank God, that we had in the 60s with the Cuban Missile Crisis and other things like that since the the decline of the Soviet Union. Um, And the question is, how does an impassioned minority uh, protest against their government in an effective way uh, uh, about things that are morally compelling to them, whether it involves how Muslims are treated, how women are treated, uh, access to health care, uh, or the threat of global warming, and uh, it's it's uh, in that arena, I think there are some lessons to emulate from the '60s, and some of those lessons are what not to do, mm-hmm. because some of the things work and some of the things do not work. Again, I my hero and North Star on all of this is Dr. King. He was taken from us in form, you know, in in uh, April of '68. Uh, his legacy, if you read what he was saying in 67, it's quite different than, it's consistent with, but much deeper in some ways than what he was saying earlier in the 60s. We always see excerpts from the I Have a Dream speech on TV each year in his birthday, and I love that speech, but... He was talking about capitalism later in his life. He was talking about colonialism. He was talking about militarism. And he was trying to bring his nonviolent Christian vision into those crises. Uh, And I think that he's the best teacher. I think that people who advocate violence then as now are delusional and self-destructive. I think uh, the people who dehumanize the people they disagree with then as now are counterproductive. Uh, I think that the... Seduction of infighting and tribalism on the left is a luxury that we cannot afford and which undermines some of the work of the 60s. Uh, one of the political anti-war leaders I admired the most for, uh, was Tom Hayden, mm-hmm. who was uh, former president of the SDS, wrote the Poor Huron Statement, which is still one of the most brilliant critiques of capitalism of my lifetime and who only died about a year ago. And he, he gave a speech in Washington shortly before he died, looking back on 50 years from some of the protests against the war. And he said that as young radicals, the new left were determined not to repeat the mistakes of what they called the old left, the left of the 30s, because of the tremendous infighting and factionalism that eviscerated their power. And he said, regrettably, they they did replicate those those internal fights, and uh, this is a luxury w- which we cannot afford today, given the stakes, the level of technology, and everything. And it's incredibly hard to get over tribalism and and what uh, Freud called the narcissism of small differences. Um, I have so many friends who work for Bernie Sanders who just can't acknowledge anything good about. Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton. And I have so many friends in the Democratic Party uh, who work for President Obama or the Clintons who can't acknowledge anything good about the Occupy Wall Street movement or about Bernie Sanders. This is insane. There has to be a way of agreeing to disagree about whether it's a $12 an hour minimum wage or a $15 hour minimum wage. We're dealing with people who don't believe in the idea of any minimum wage uh and um i think that the biggest work for the left today and the left meaning anybody in the broadest sense of the word anyone who doesn't support the trump administration and the republicans is to find ways to communicate with each other on our side before we can a lot of talk about communicating with the uh, trump voters and i think that's incredibly important i think one of the mistakes of the 60s was he dehumanized the people we disagreed with Um, we used to Called, you know, in the hippie world, we would divide people into straights and heads. Heads were people who smoked dope and straights in the pre-gay liberation era were people who didn't. That's not healthy. That doesn't help. People don't like being called straight and being condescended to and being thought of as uncool. It doesn't. That's not peace and love. That's that's snobbery. And um but before even doing that within our own communities, we have to find ways of respecting each other So these epithets of neoliberal or took money from Goldman Sachs on the one side or Bernie bros and nihilistic lefties on the other. We have to somehow go beyond that. I think as we record this, the Democrats just lost a congressional race in Georgia, thinking that all they needed was being against Trump. There has to be some coherent, inspiring vision that incorporates the skills of those who work within the system and the idealism of those who work outside of the system not that the people in the system aren't idealistic but they've lowered their expectations and not that people outside the system don't have competence but they don't have the experience of running bureaucracies these clusters of people have to work together and avoid those mistakes of the 60s mm-hmm.
1: right which is very d- i couldn't agree more <laughs> i think there is a lot of that idea of like i'm going to be more liberal than you um yeah that goes on
0: yeah some people say i'm more liberal than you and mm-hmm. some people say I'm more pragmatic than you and right. You know, the fact is there's idealism and pragmatism on on all of these areas and there's stupidity in all of these groups. And the idea is to try to find enough to agree on. The civil rights leaders of the 60s, for the most part, did not like each other. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP was irritated by Dr. King. He thought King came along as a grandstander and undermined the decades of work the NAACP had done. And Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell uh, you know uh, mock Dr. King for you know they thought he was too wimpy uh, there were uh, they, they fought with each other a lot behind closed doors didn't particularly like each other but they had a capacity to create coalitions on big things and so you did have a civil rights bill and you did have some big changes the gay rights movement was able to do the same thing not everybody in the gay rights movement liked everybody else or shared the same exact tactics or cultural biases but this is what we need is is the ability to find ways of agreeing to disagree because otherwise look the whole uh, accusation of the russian hack of the dnc okay let's say they did it i think they did so did the intelligence agencies well what did they do
1: Mm -hmm.
0: they exposed emails which were then curated and all the emails were publicized by whoever did it was to was to alienate Bernie Sanders voters from Hillary Clinton. That was the only agenda they had. All the emails that got publicity were about how somebody was mean to Bernie. So they recognize that if they divide us, they win, and they recognize that when we're united, we might win.
1: Right. Right. Well it's been we've been talking for a while, so (laughs) it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, This was Danny Goldberg, the author of In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and The Hippie Idea. Danny, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: Thank you so much. Bye-bye.